Well, I've got some, some bad news for y'all. Y'all may have heard we have some problems in the world. Oh, you have heard. Yeah, that's a little bit of an understatement, isn't it? Gosh, wh- where do you start? Poverty? Greed? Uh, a, a growing rampant sexual immorality and disease and perversion all over this planet? War? Economic crisis, nation against nation, you know, and then out of each of those titles flows like what? A hundred other problems? And and then, of course, there's what we're dealing with in our nation. We've got energy crisis. We've got energy dependence. We've got unemployment. We've got a a mortgage crisis, health care. We have a, what I believe, you heard it here first from the great economist Randy Hahn, You've got a college loan crisis looming on the horizon that I believe will dwarf the mortgage crisis. Got all these problems, but the good news is our government's got it. Got it all fixed. We just need to, you know, get the right guy in there and and he's got it. He's got the plans. He's got the ideas. Never mind, got a minor little detail problem. We're 16 trillion in debt. Gosh, what does that even mean? Isn't it interesting to talk about the candidates on any level? about what they're going to do and how they fix it. They don't have a penny in their pocket. China is going to be who fixes it for us. That's who we're depending on to fix anything that we're talking about. But they've got it. They're going to, they're going to fix it. They've got the answer for us. I don't guess really any of us actually believe that, do we? Now, I want to tell you something. I'm not down on government. I'm not down on government in general. I'm not down on our government. I think we have the best government in history. I believe we have the best government in the world today. I do not believe that the great problem in the United States of America comes first by our government. No, the church is first in line there. America is where it is today because of the church in the United States. Take, for example, that that great theme. Y'all responded just like I wanted you to. Now, don't tell the second and third service. Man, we say Jesus for president. Yeah, woo, yes, amen, glory to God. That's the way it should be. But let me ask you a question. As we leave our houses of worship today, 50, 60, 70 million of us strong, as we leave our houses of worship, are our lives a campaign for the president, Jesus Christ? Are our lives a campaign that make it clear this guy has the answers. Let's think about that today. Let's start. Would you turn with me to Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you can find the Psalms in your Bible, you're almost there. Turn to the Psalms and go right. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the chairs in front of you that you can reach or maybe have somebody hand to you. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, this book written by Solomon, the son of David. Solomon gives us the Proverbs, he gives us Ecclesiastes, and believe it or not, the Song of Solomon. These three books come from this really smart guy. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and let me begin right there in verse 1. It says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute Futility. Your translation may say vanity of vanities or may say everything is meaningless. 
Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a man gain for all his efforts he labors at under the sun? In these three short verses, Solomon gives us two small phrases that guide kind of his message throughout this book, that guide kind of his view of the world. Now, the first one's kind of obvious. He says it there, absolute futility or everything is meaningless. Just to make sure you get it, he is going to say that phrase, get this, 37 times. 37 times in just 12 chapters. Boy, he's really stuck on that, isn't it? I mean, this is Johnny Raincloud come to town. Everything. I don't care what you try. I don't care what you do. It's meaningless. It's going to come to nothing. It's not going to work. It's not going to provide the answers for your life. Boy, now everything, all, those are big words, aren't they? I mean, who, who is Solomon to say nothing works? Everything's meaningless. What, Solomon, have you tried everything? Yes, I have. Look at chapter 1, verse 13 there. It says, I applied my mind to seek and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. Solomon decided to do a high school research project. Got the tri-board and everything. He said, I'm going to do a project. I'm going to do some research. I'm going to try everything and I'm going to see if any of it makes a difference. I'm going to see if any of it really provides the answers that we're looking for, provides the meaning that we're looking for, provides the life that we're looking for. And he set out, he didn't just do a lot of things and then say, hey guys, guess what I learned? No, he started out front on purpose, intentionally to try everything and see where it actually leads. If you look down at chapter 2, I'm not going to read it, but if you'll just kind of glance down through verses 1 through 12, he, he kind of gives you the things that he tried. I'm not going to read it, but let me just read some of the verbs. I will test you with pleasure. I said about laughter. I tried wine. I explored with my mind. I increased, I built, I planted, I made, I constructed, I acquired, I owned, I amassed, I gathered, I became great, I considered, I found. So what Solomon is basically telling, if you read those verses, is he said, you know what? I got on the road of sex and I took it as far down that road as I could go. You remember this guy had a thousand wives. He said, man, I'm going to run this thing all the way out. You know, he's not saying I didn't have fun along the way. He's not saying I didn't enjoy something along the way. He's not saying I didn't achieve something or, or have a sense of accomplishment along the way. But here I am at the start of the road. If you run this road all the way out to the end, what do you have? And he, and he tried that with sex. He tried that with alcohol. He tried that with business ventures. He tried that with building projects. He tried that with enrichment of society, enrichment of the community. He tried that with enrichment of himself, with enrichment of his mind. He ran all these roads out. And he gets to the end and says, gosh, man, it all ends up at the same dead end. It all ends up meaning absolutely nothing. And he finally concludes his research project in verse 17. And he says, I hated life. Man, that's, a, that's not like what we expected. Does it really say that in verse 17? Yeah, it sure does. 
I mean, that's not like what we expect to read in the Bible, is it? How does somebody who has everything come to the place where they say, I hate life? I mean, folks, do you remember who Solomon is? This is the guy with the golden ticket. This is the guy who got the blank check. God came to him and said, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give you anything. Ask for it. Solomon says, you know what I want, God? I want wisdom to justly lead your people. Scripture says that God was so blessed, so impressed with that answer that he said, Solomon, I'm not only going to give you wisdom unlike the world has ever seen in one human being. I'm going to give you everything that you could have asked for. You know, imagine we could go around this room today and we would all fill in the blank. Probably in some ways a lot the same. In other ways, there'd be some difference. You say, what blank? This blank. Boy, I'd be so happy if. Fill in the blank. You know what Solomon would say to you when you filled in your blank? No, you won't. It won't work. It won't make a difference. Gosh, how does a guy who who talked to God who was so blessed by God, who had everything spiritually and and physically, everything. How does he end up hating life? There's there's an old tale told of a a spider up in the the top of the barn. And and, and the spider lowers himself down on that single strand of webbing and he he finds just the, the perfect spot between the cross beams there. And he begins to build his web. Oh, it's an elaborate structure, a beautiful structure. Pride of the barn, really. It's, by the way, this is not Charlotte's web. <laughs> the spider's not going to write any messages in it. But it's a beautiful web. I mean, and it provides everything the spider needs. That's a fancy way of saying it catches bugs. And one day that the spider's enjoying what he's created and what he's done and all that he has there. And he notices that, that single webbing, that, that single strand that goes up in the ceiling. And he thinks, you know, that thing never catches any, any bugs for me. And it doesn't really add to the, the beauty of my web. And so he scurries up to the top of the web and he clips the strand. What happens? The web crumbles down. Folks, Solomon clipped the single strand. That's how we ended up hating life. I said there was two phrases in verse 3 that describe this book. The second phrase, kind of indescript, you'd run right by it and think nothing's being communicated there. But the second phrase is in there in verse 3. It's those three little words, under the sun. He mentions that phrase 29 times in these 12 chapters. So that phrase has everything to do with the message of this book. You know, Ecclesiastes was one of the more debated books of whether this was truly God's word and whether it belonged in the Bible because it has such a negative message. Phrases, there's verses in here that sound almost contradictory to the rest of Scripture. This doesn't belong in the Bible. This isn't a biblical message. And yet when you attach to it Solomon's context by which he's making all these statements, under the sun, you're going to hate life. Under the sun, with no connection to God, everything is going to come up meaningless. Solomon's not saying that sex is bad and has no place in life. 
Solomon is not saying that business is bad and has no place in life. Solomon is not saying that that building and constructing and enriching is, is meaningless. He is saying that if all of your doing, all of your answers are completely on the horizontal, it's all going to come to empty. The book is only depressing as a reminder that without any connection to God, nothing adds up. Nothing is going to work. Nothing is connected. We're born and then we die. Good luck trying to make something significant out of it in the middle. There's plenty of philosophers, plenty of atheists who would say, that's right, that's just fine, leave it there. We're born and we die. Let's just, let's just leave it with that. The problem is we can't. Not even the atheist in the quietness of his heart laying in bed at night. You know why we can't leave it at you're born and then you die? Solomon knows why we can't. He says it in chapter 3, verse 11. He says that God set eternity in our hearts. We know. We know there's something bigger than this. We know that this thing we call life is not the big prize. This is not what it's all about. We know there's a bigger story going on and our heart longs to know where does my story fit into the story? What's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? How does this all tie together? On the horizontal, we'll never put it together. We need that single strand that connects us back to God. And that single strand, folks, I'm not going to beat around the bush or build up to that. The single strand's Jesus Christ, isn't it? Listen to how Colossians expresses this or how, how Paul expresses this in the letter to Colossae. He says in Colossians 1 verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, Because by Him, by Jesus, everything was created in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things and by Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is the single strand. He is what ties it all together. He is what gives every single thing its meaning, its purpose, its value, and its worth. We came from Jesus. We are returning to Jesus. And life is lived in between, for, and through Jesus. Jesus is the single strand. He is the answer. And that is why. And we believe that, don't we? Yeah, we believe that. And that's why when we just put... Three words up there, Jesus for president. We can't help but say, woo! Yes, that's the answer. Unfortunately, he's not going to be on the ballot November 6th, is he? Unfortunately, he's not going to end up in the White House no matter how that, that ballot turns out. Now, yes, Jesus is the king of all kings. He runs all governments. He holds the hearts of kings in his hands. That's not what I'm addressing right now. Jesus in person is not going to be in the, in the White House when this election is said and done. Or can he be? Is there a way that you and I can vote so that that is what happens? Folks, I believe that going to vote on November 6th, voting on that ballot is one of the more significant things we do. I believe a ballot is very significant. 
But there's something even more significant. And that is the vote that you cast every single day, all day long, with your life. Folks, do you understand that God created government? The creator of something designs the purpose of that something. And God has made it very clear, he did not put government on this planet to lead us to the vertical. The government is only going to keep us on the horizontal, so they are therefore always going to suggest schemes and ideas that ultimately end up on a dead road. They weren't put here for that. That's not their fault. That's not their design. Do you know who was put us here to lead us to the vertical? The church. One of the government's great responsibilities is to get out of the way of the church. And in the miracle of all miracles, do you realize that you and I live in the miracle of government? There is a group of men, we call them our founding fathers, who actually figured that out. Who actually got it and when they put together the Constitution of the United States, they put in there that the the government has to stay out of the way of the church. There is nothing in that Constitution that shackles the church. It shackles the government. Because they knew we ultimately bring the answer. You cannot debate that. I don't care what you, I don't care if you hate God and you hate the church. You cannot debate that constitutional history. They weren't put here to do that. You and I were put here to, you know, my, my, my number one priority on November 6th is, I care about taxes, I care about war, I care about energy, I care about health care, I care about all those things and I'll vote with those things in mind. My number one priority in that booth is to vote for the man that I believe will be the least antagonistic to the church and scriptures. I say the word least because our government is absolutely antagonistic to the church and scriptures. Do you know why? Because that's what we voted for. Yes, in a ballot box, but every day of our lives. Folks, the church, in tremendous hypocrisy, is standing back and demanding that the government give us Christian values while we leave our houses of worship and go out and live by worldly values. We leave our houses of worship and we join everybody who didn't go to church today looking for answers in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We leave our houses of worship and we go out there looking for answers in money. It's always about money. It is all about money. That will be the number one driver of our votes on November 6th. Money is the answer. Can you actually say that Christians are any different? We demand that the government give us Christian values while we, the ones who actually know His name, Jesus Christ, will not speak it out there in our world. 60 million people, 60 million Americans are worshiping Jesus Christ this morning. If you go by statistics, only two and a half million out of 60 million will ever once, not once this day, not once this week, not once this year, will ever one time in their entire lives say, I know Jesus Christ and He is the answer. We're voting against Him. We are voting against Christ. We are not telling anybody who the candidate is. 
We come in here and we worship. Woo! Jesus for president. Jesus is king. Jesus is God. I'm not going to tell anybody that. Not one person my entire life. And then we wonder, how did we get to where we are today? Because we voted for it. You know, I've been doing an interesting experiment in my life this week. I've been trying to stop myself. I'm trying to do this like 10, 12, 15 times a day. I try to stop myself into that. What I just did there or what I'm about to, was that a vote for Jesus or against Jesus? It's interesting. Kind of watch yourself do this all week long. Was that a vote for? Did I just vote for him in what I just said or did I just vote against him? Did I just vote for him or against him in the way that I responded to that person, in the way that I treated my mate, in the way that I handle my enemies, in the way I run business, in the way I go to school? Am I voting for or against Jesus? Now, folks, I think you're going to find... Don't let me sound like I hate church people. I think you're going to find, like me, there's a lot of places where you vote for Christ. You, you voted for Christ when you got up and came to church this morning, didn't you? That's a vote for Christ. You're going to find there's a lot of places that we, we vote for Him. Now, in all reality, let's be honest, we cast some no votes this week, didn't we? Come on, man, there's some places where you, you voted no. In your attitude, in your values, in your words, in your treatment of that person, you voted no in that moment. Now here's what I believe, my opinion of what has happened in the United States in the last 30, 40 years. We've reached a tipping point. Not the world, the church. The church is casting more no votes than it is yes votes. Folks, if we're casting more no votes than we are yes votes, then pray tell, what kind of government do you think you're going to get? Do you really anticipate that the government is going to rise higher than the church? Do you really think that they're going to lead us to see the person of Christ? God didn't even put them on this earth to do that. He put you and me here to do that. And if we're out there too busy voting no... Welcome to the United States of 2012. I think it is very important that on November 6th we vote. I believe it is our moral and civic responsibility. I believe it is a sin for a Christian not to vote with the knowledge and the spirit that we have. 30 million Christians did not vote in 2010. 30 million evangelical Christians did not vote. Is it just me or does 30 million sound like a whole lot? We have to vote. But folks, if we're not voting for Christ with our lives, then honestly, I don't think it matters who is president or governor or senator. I don't think it matters if you vote yes or no on Proposition 1, 2, 4, or 107. It's not going to matter. We're going to go to hell in a rat hole. And we're the ones who know he's the answer. Do that this week. Just kind of watch yourself. Was that a vote against? A vote for. A vote against? A vote for. We need to cast our ballot. It needs to be clear. It begins for every person when they cast their ballot with that profession of faith. And they say, I belong to the candidate, Jesus Christ. 
And we carry that ballot up here into the waters of baptism. You know, on November 6th, as you approach that, that ballot box, you'll get to do that in secrecy, won't you? Nobody will know what you're voting for. As a matter of fact, we even got laws to say you can't be intimidated. You can't be bothered. Nobody's supposed to even get near you. I mean, you just got to check in, but then it's you and you alone. Nobody's allowed to intimidate you. Jesus does not give you that option. He does not give you the option of following him secretly and quietly. He does not say, no, you don't get to be intimidated about this. No, he says you are to be profoundly public in your profession of faith. Profoundly public in the waters of baptism. If I can't be public in here where we're all saying Jesus for president, then how in the world am I going to leave here and say Jesus for president out there where it's not applauded? We go into those waters of baptism saying, He is my president. We come up out of those waters of baptism and we begin to treat our mate like Jesus is president. We begin to handle our money like Jesus is president. We begin to make decisions by the president's policies and by the president's leadership. We begin to handle our fears and our frustrations. We begin to handle our our enemies by the president's policies. And Jesus says, as you one by one with each of my policies begin to construct and build your life, he says at the end of Matthew chapter 7, you will build a house that will not fall. You will build a house on solid rock. Isn't that what we want? I want a house that stands the storm. Storms are coming. We're not debating about whether storms are. They're coming. I want a house that stands the storms. I want a community that stands the storms. I want a government, a nation that stands the storms. Jesus said, then build them on my policies. Folks, you and I vote for those policies every day of our lives. Vote on November 6th. But vote every day of your life for Jesus Christ. Because if we're not voting for him, then the world doesn't have a chance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am sorry that I'm a part of a culture, a part of a Christian community that has set back, and we've not looked to you to fix our country. We've looked to our government. We've asked the government to do what you put us here to do. We have rebelled. We have rejected our God-given assignment to campaign for Christ in this world. To campaign with our words. To campaign with our values. To campaign with our activities. To campaign in our relationships. To campaign with our money. We've said, I'm not going to campaign for anyone or anything. I'm going to let the government fix that for me. God, would you forgive us? Lord, I, in one way, I kind of know what to pray here for the church. Another way, I don't even know how to pray. I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say. I wonder if I pray, do I even believe it? Do I even believe that a change can happen in this country? Most churches don't even believe your word. So many churches out there don't even believe and preach that Jesus is the actual Son of God in which there resides salvation. That single strand that connects us to everything that counts. God, would you convict the church of her responsibility and her failure? 
God, could we see a revival among your people? And Lord, as I pray that for the, the capital C, the big C church, God, I pray for us, a local church, a specific church. Make you, may, may you make us incredibly aware this week of our own lives. God, my tendency when I'm following Satan is to say, oh, that didn't mean anything. That doesn't count. That's not affecting the country. Pfft, that's just one little person. I, I, it doesn't matter that I fought with my wife today. That's not going to change America. And when 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 million believers continually discount every single action, well, it does start to add up. God, give us eyes to see and to be aware of what we're voting for all week long. God, I walked into those waters of baptism so proud, so excited, so in love with you. I could not believe that you loved me and saved me. I believe there's many people in this room that would say exactly the same thing. God, may we be mindful that we were supposed to come up out of those waters just as proud, just as excited, just as in love, just as overwhelmed that we are loved. And let that be seen in everything we are and in everything that we do. We have tremendous power to impact a culture. We need your help for this, Lord God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.